Welcome back to the next episode of the Ecumen Present the Baltimore Catechism. So today we're going over lesson two. We kind of hit lesson one there last week, going through who made us, who is God, and things like that. And now we're going to go into God and his perfections. So uh, starting here with question eight. What do we mean when we say that God is the supreme being? So when we're talking about God as the supreme being, uh, he's above all creatures. So unlike a creature, he is not created. He has no beginning. He has no end. He won't change ever. So he's always going to be the same. When we're uh, looking at him, we got Isaiah here, 44, 6, where he actually says, I am the first and I am the last. And besides me, there is no God. And I think before we uh, go and start adding more onto this detail here, we're going to also add in question nine. What is a spirit? And a spirit, according to the catechism, is a being that has understanding and free will, but no body and will never die. So when we think of God the Father, the Holy Ghost, the angels, at least what we know about them at this moment, no bodies whatsoever. So not like the creatures and not like Jesus, who actually took on human nature and divine nature at the same time. And I think before we continue on into the next questions right here we're going to also add in this is a very difficult subject to cover for anyone coming into christianity in that it is very easy to go off the rails here and end up in a heretical conversation very quickly and we're going to do everything we can to avoid it we'll make sure the source as much of this as we can with any of the fathers or the doctors but no these are some of the difficult things and this is where honestly we get tripped up when we're talking with atheists um, as we get into the next lesson, which we're going to cover here in a little bit. Next week, we're looking at what Muslims think about the Trinity, and that will also cause more havoc. So just bear with us. If you have questions, throw them in the comments section below, and we will add in everything we can and try and help you out. Yeah, this is a, um, it's a big topic, like, like you said, Pete. And this is the piece, I think, is, you, is kind of pivots on how you understand Christ. So God the Father being the supreme being, fully spirit, and from a from a human aspect, this is how I guess I learned to appreciate the smallness of myself in the universe. It's like looking out over the ocean for the first time. It's just how insignificant you can be in the grand scheme comparatively to a supreme being, an all-knowing being uh, that is purely spirit who created everything, not because he needs us for anything, just because he thought us up and loved the idea of us and wanted to see us do our thing, so to speak. And with that, you know, ripple that kind of resonated throughout time and space throughout the universe of, of original sin, uh, we can never pull that back. And we, of course, needed to atone for that, which we were never capable of doing. So only God was ever good enough for himself. And you know, thus, thus the son, the incarnation occurs. But without understanding what God is in pure spirit in, in that vastness, we can never really truly understand, uh, I guess, the enormity of sin. I think, to Pete, you and I were talking about this, or leading into this episode, and kind of wrestling with the idea, are we going to go into logical proofs about what a supreme being is, and are we going to get into Pascal or Thomas Aquinas? But I think we are approaching these episodes with the idea that you're already interested in the catechism, you're already interested in what the Catholic Church says, we are kind of approaching this from an, from an understanding that, at the very least, you're probably agnostic. We're not necessarily treating this as a proof of God's existence, um, as you might see on some of the other social media channels and videos of that nature, where we're trying to convert the hardcore atheist. So 
if that's something that people want to see, maybe maybe that is something we can do uh, at a later time. But for right now, we are kind of taking the idea that this is uh, something that's already accepted, that there is a supreme being. Now, how do we understand a supreme being? That's, well, that's very, very difficult for a finite mind to understand the infinite. It's actually impossible. I think we as, an, as humans have a natural desire to understand or the, the way in which we see the world is is very much a, a parent-child relationship, right? So things are there because, by and large, a lot of times, man has interacted with them, right? That brick is there because some man put it there. The crops are there because someone planted it there. So we always have this desire to say, where did things come from and follow, trace it back. So for us to understand that or comprehend that there is a being that is outside of time, it's outside of space, and is the creator of all things and existed before all things, it's extremely, extremely difficult to wrap your mind around. So now moving on to question 10, what do we mean when we say that God is self-existing? So here the thing about God is he exists, period, done. Whether uh, we think it, whether we acknowledge it, it's kind of irrelevant. The way he says it to Moses is, I am who I am. So when we're looking at God as a being, He's honestly defined by existence. The fact that we have thought, the fact that we are here is all because of his existence. Again, really difficult stuff to cover here, but because he is the being that is, this is something that Jesus says when he comes as well, answers the same thing with the the I am. I like to call out my modernist brethren on this one, where if God is who he is at all times and all places in, in past, present, future, then you can't have a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament, and the standard can't change and slip. So God's justice and God's mercy are infinitely proportional and the same in all times and places. Yeah, he didn't just change his mind one day and say, I'm going to be a super happy, loving, completely merciful God and forget what happened all those years ago. Actually, Pete and I were talking about earlier where it was the uh, the buddy Jesus thing kind of popped up in the 90s. Yeah. And uh, it, What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Oh, he would just love you and accept you and all your sin. There's a there's a great meme uh, I've seen floating around on, on Facebook, uh, what would Jesus do? And people forget that flipping over tables, chasing people with a whip is still in the realm of possibility. Yeah, it's in the toolbox. <laughs> yeah, Let's put it there. That's something we could grab. And I think this is where we would tune back in the glory be uh, as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be. And if we look at it from that standpoint, we have to acknowledge that everything God is, is who he was. And therefore the Old Testament God was only the pieces that we saw of God prior to him incarnating and coming down to earth. In the end, all of that is still God. His justice is still there and has been there from the beginning. His mercy was there and has been from the beginning, which is why he redeemed all of those people who came before he actually sat was sacrificed on the cross to his father. Those things are all uh, factored into uh, who God is. Uh, moving forward, we're into what do we mean when we say hey, God? Hey, Pete, real quick, yeah, yeah. Uh, go back. Uh, when you mentioned, you made mention of the glory be. Uh, go ahead and explain that for maybe somebody who's never heard of um, the glory be. So the glory be is a common prayer. It is said on the um, Catholic side as well as Protestants say it as well. The actual prayer being glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So very common. It uh, shows up in the Mass. It shows up mm-hmm. in the Rosary. It shows up all over the place. Just a very common prayer, but I think oftentimes too many people overlook 
the words that are said in the prayers. A lot of people go through the motions, but not a lot of people stop to contemplate the fact that God is who he always was. And therefore, in the future, when he returns again, his second coming, same God, exactly where he started out in the beginning. The only difference, really, is us. Man is the one who actually necessitates the return of God to earth, not necessarily um, anything that happened to God. We can't impact God. There's nothing that us as creatures could ever do to lessen who he is. It's only whether or not we acknowledge who he is and who he has been forever. So moving to question 11, what do we mean when we say that God is infinitely perfect? So he's divine. Everything that he is and thinks he is, is perfect. It's amazing. It's glorious. It's magnificent. There are no words that we could possibly use in this world to properly or adequately describe what the characteristics of God's perfection happen to be. We just know that he'll never make a mistake. He'll never make a poor judgment. There will never be anything that he does wrong. Now, that does not mean that you're going to like every single decision that he made when he made it perfectly. <laughs> this just means that he did it for a reason, and there's going to be a lot of things that we don't like. And when we talk about perfection and what we don't like about his perfection, we have to remember anything we don't like about his perfection is actually a flaw in ourselves. God the Father allowed his son to be sacrificed, and his son was innocent, and he didn't like it necessarily. <laughs> it's not something that he thought... Hey, I just want to do this for fun. He did it because it needed to be done because it was the way that perfection would be manifested. So overall, perfection happens whether we like it or not. And we have to acknowledge then this perfection is hugely contrasted to the imperfections that occur from corruptions out of original sin, out of the fall, not only from man, but also the fall of Satan. All of these things factor in and in our imperfections and our sins, as we continue to walk away from God, it makes it even harder for the fallen man to even contemplate the perfection of God. It's one of the toughest things I came across in my conversion was the, the not the walking away, but as you walk closer, the sheer amount of imperfection you start to identify in your own life, yourself, thought patterns, it is indeed overwhelming, at least initially. And then you just get really comfortable with the fact that this is why I need a, a savior and I have to just keep striving. But the, the parent aspect, my children have taught me a lot in regards to relationships, especially with God. And, uh, you know, you watch your kids scream and cry over the most trivial things that, that you take away for their own good. And yet they just can't seem to comprehend uh, the greater good that you're trying to give them uh, later in life or, uh, or even at the moment, the safety or, you know, welfare concerns, all the temporal needs a parent gives a child. And yet when we pray, we pray for the, for the trivial temporal things, you know, why can't I be rich? Why can't I be loved? Blah, blah, blah. All these, all these things that are just complete waste of our time, maybe from God's perspective, things that'll keep us out of heaven. I think it's one of the things that as traditional Catholics, we have such a issue with the modernist world because the modernist world is so imperfect. And once you, how do I want to say this? Once you see how imperfect humans really are in comparison with, with God, his divine will, his plan, and you see humans just essentially toiling in the mud, you know, trying to perfect this nation state or this whatever this human idea is it's very frustrating and hard sometimes to relate which we're not necessarily called to relate with this world but we are called to relate with humans to bring them closer 
Yeah, and I think the issue really is, which we'll hit here in the next questions, are the fact that men, by our nature, by our human nature, there is nothing we can do apart from God. Therefore, when we start to do things that are apart from God, there's absolutely no way they can even resemble perfection. Therefore, when you look at the institutions of men, the endeavors of men, the, any organization of men, any relationship between men, in the end, if it was actually done without God involved, then in the end, we will not see perfection. So moving forward on to question 12, what are those perfections that show us how God is perfect? Um, sorry to be circular. Again, difficult topic. God is eternal. He is all good. He is all knowing. He is all present. And he is almighty. And thankfully, we're going to go into more detail on the next question here where we sit there and say, what do we mean when we say God is eternal? Um, this means going back to the glory be again. He always was. He always will be, and he always remains the same. Therefore, there is no beginning, there is no end. God just is, as we have talked about earlier in this lesson. So he actually says through John in Revelation that I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He precedes everything that was ever created because it was him who created it. He is so great that he didn't need a beginning or an end. He just is. And therefore, uh, he actually passes on that perfection, thankfully, for those of us who may make it to heaven, he will pass on that eternal nature to us uh, when he shares his divinity. And unfortunately, that also means he passes on, he, that means he will pass on that eternity also to those whom decide they don't want to be with him in hell as well. So question 14, what do we mean when we say that God is all good? When we see that, say that God is all good, we mean he's infinitely lovable in himself and that from his fatherly love, every good comes to us. What I was saying earlier about the fact that God is perfect and that he makes all good decisions, everything that he is doing is meant to help us, is meant to show how glorious he is, uh, meant to show how powerful he is, uh, honestly meant to magnify and show us how much he loves us. These things in being all good, the, this, this characteristic of him being all good, really is what makes the Christian and the Christian experience put every other possible religion or type of belief system that, that exists on the face of the earth, puts them all to shame. It, it tells us why a, a Christian can live a life where we suffer and where we end up feeling pain and where we have loss, where things go wrong and the world's on fire around us. But for some reason, you can find these Christians, especially saints, who are still happy all the while. And contrary to what Martin Luther tries to posit, where he tries to make the, the, the assertion that God actually wills evil, that is absolutely impossible. God in his justice and the fact that he is all good ensures that all he will will is good. However, when his will gives us the free will that he promised, he now will allow us that we get whatever fruits come from those decisions. Because the problem here is that there are people who try to act as if God is terrible because evil is allowed. Evil was not God's fault. Evil was man's fault and ultimately Satan's fault together, deciding that we, those individuals who committed such sins, wanted to be outside of good, outside of God. God in and of himself is good, and we have to remember that evil is actually the absence of that good, and there is no absence of good in God. So let's talk about the whole idea of people doing good things, even though they aren't Christian. Let's play those what-if games. And again, 
good is only possible with God. There may be non-Christians who do deeds that could be considered good, but they are only considered good in the light of God, not apart from him. Ultimately, again, which we'll get to in future episodes, the church is the means by which good comes into this world because Christ willed it to be so. The sacraments enable people to share in that glory, the grace of God. And in that grace is where good is possible. And all things are deemed only in light of what people accept of his will. The issue being that even though someone can make a good action on their own, they still can end up going to hell if they decide to reject the rest of those good things that are God. We don't have the luxury of accepting part of his good. We must accept all of his good because he is God. If we don't accept all of his good, then we don't accept God. It's that simple. Inversely, truth, God is all truth, and the church is the vehicle from which truth is kind of dispersed amongst the earth and the faithful. And any additional church means religion, false religions, let's cut to the chase, false religions, they're only holders of truth when they are aligning with the church that God founded. Not in spite of it, but because of it. And and kind of in the same, similar vein with the natural good that you're referring to, Pete, the uh, you know, mass murder can give the charity. It can feed the homeless, can... Uh, can do. Satanists can bring socks for the homeless. Yes, you know, and they like puppies too. I bet you know, it, but it doesn't merit anything. You know, the treasure in heaven, the merit, the good works that count. Uh, there's no merit there because it's apart, separated from God. And I think it's, it's also important too. It says right here in the Catechism, um, things are good and lovable in the degree that they are perfect. So good things can be better than others. It's part of the objective reality. There is a greater good, and not in the use that it's normally used. I don't mean for the greater good I sacrifice this, that, or the other, someone's lives or whatever it is. I'm not talking about that, some cold calculus. But it is important to understand, yes, you held the door open for something that was good, but that is not equal to martyrdom. That's a better good. Objectively speaking, it is. And I think that illustrates the hierarchies where God shows very often there are hierarchies, there's degrees. He acknowledges in terms of the saints in heaven, there are multiple levels of the saints in heaven. Uh, When he acknowledges the level that John the Baptist ascends, um, when we look at the fact that he still is supporting uh, royalty and talking about the line of David and the fact that there are kings, by saying that there are kings, this also means that there must be subjects. This is why Paul talks about being a slave. We can see all manner of levels and why then Paul would go on to talk about different professions and everything else, all of them good but all of them different functions, all of them different and complementary roles. In the end, everything can still be good, but not have to be identical. We're not egalitarian. We're not communist. All of those things are completely contrary to what God is and the uniqueness which he has created. But good must be taken in the eyes of God, his eternity, and his intent, not in terms of weird man-made ideologies or institutions on earth which try to deny the uniqueness established in each one of these individuals. Now, moving on to the next question here, because Brian brought up the truth piece. Um, God is all-knowing, so because he's God and because he made everything and because he has the ability then to look at all of his creation in a detail that we cannot even fathom, he knows everything about us. He can see inside of our hearts. He can see inside of our minds. This is why it is important that we practice our faith and follow him, 
not just by deed, not just by word, not just empty superficial practice, but in every part of our being is devoted towards him because he knows it. He's watching it. In the end, this is why we're supposed to be perfect. So he's watching how everything works. Um, and I would say this is also complemented with the all-present piece as well. Because he's all-knowing and because of who he is, because he ex exists outside of time and space, he knows everything that's happened and everything that, that will happen. He's been everywhere and is everywhere, which means there's nothing you can ever hide from God. So I think that's one of the odd things about people whenever they start doing things that intrinsically they know are immoral or that other people would reject. They try to hide it, you know, close doors, do it in darkness, whatever. It doesn't matter. God already knows about it. God's already there to watch it. It's, it's a futile game. And I think this is one of the things that's most threatening about the Christian faith and the Christian God is that there's no way to get away from him. Just for the, uh, the listeners out there, uh, if you feel the need to do it behind a closed door, you probably shouldn't be doing it at all. Just a pro tip here from a bunch of Catholic guys. But the, the fact that the madness it would drive you to always know that you're being watched, that you're always being, you know, or eventually going to be judged by what you do in secret. I could see why people would reject it because it's just not compatible with a lot of modern lifestyles, especially the 21st century where you have an electronic device at your disposal, especially uh, men and a significant percentage of ladies today if we're dealing with other issues that are uh, against the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. But it's it helps to increase your zeal to understand that God is there. If you're ever feeling a lack of motivation, a lack of, uh, of just that, that drive to Start your own journey of self-perfection, which always begins with prayer and, and eventually sacrifice. Uh, just know that God is with you in all things. And at a minimum, understand your guardian angels are watching you as well. I think, you know, the all good, the all knowing, the all present, as we already said, they're linked, they're intertwined. But if I accept the fact that God is all knowing, he's all present, he sees everything, he knows everything. And we've already talked about the idea of degrees of good and my actions can only be considered good as they become closer to God's will and his perfect will. Everything that I do at that point then becomes that accountability that we talked about in the last episode. Essentially, I know because God is all good, he is all knowing. And we talked about degrees of good, which I think to kind of circle back to that one real quick makes sense, right? The idea you said you talked about justice, Pete, uh, before, and that makes sense in our hearts. If, if you returned a dollar that I dropped, Brian, that, that's very good of you. If you saved my firstborn, that's better of you. The rewards for those things are two different things. Again, we're not, we're not egalitarians. Not everyone's on the same footing. But again, it goes back to knowing that all my actions are seen and the, the reward or punishment for those things will certainly await me. It's that accountability that I think a good Catholic knows and fears. So I think that leads us into the, ne the next thing here, where if we, we were acknowledging God knows everything, and he is everywhere, this leads in the next two questions being, why don't we see him? Uh, question 17. And does God see us? Question 18, which we've kind of already talked about. In the end, God is everywhere, and he's a spirit, and he can't be seen with our eyes. Now, the exception here is ultimately the tabernacle and the host, when it transubstantiation, which we'll talk about in the future episodes here, that is the only place where we can see God in the flesh today. We're waiting for a return, which will happen someday. It could be 
20 generations from now, who knows? But at the moment, the only place we can find him is in that tabernacle in a Catholic church. That's the only place where we're going to be able to see him. But outside of that, even though God is watching us and looking at everything that's going on as he takes care of us, as he's trying to go and ensure that he guides us down the road that is the one that he's calling us to, that narrow path, he is going to do that kind of from not necessarily a distance, but from he's going to do it in a manner that we're not going to notice him necessarily unless we're actually looking for him in that spiritual sense, but not in the physical sense through our eyes. Yeah, in the spiritual sense, I mean, he is everywhere. He's amongst creation. He is there in the silence. He is there in the sunrise. But yes, in the physical sense, you are correct, Pete. The only place he is physically present on this earth right now is in the tabernacle. Question 19 here. What is God's loving care for us called? God's living care for us is called his divine providence, which we hear about this a lot in terms of divine providence. And, and unfortunately, it, it gets a little bit... Gets used to describe an outcome that we personally want. All too often. This is the Joel Osteens of the world and the weird Calvinist doctrines where we presume that even though he said in one part of his book that you can't tell who's going to be saved, and then he says in the other part of his book, well, I mean, you can see who's going to be saved. Whatever that means, the problem is, is that then you have individuals like the pilgrims and others who took this to this next level of sitting there presuming that divine providence meant earthly prosperity. They thought it meant physical wealth. They, they thought it manifest meant, destiny. Yeah, it, it, they thought it meant all this worldly comfort when it's completely out of line with what Christ talked about in terms of the fact that we're going to suffer, that we have to bear a cross. And in the end, divine providence is God's desire that we end up in heaven for eternity, able to glorify him without any pain whatsoever, no loss, because he fills us entirely. Divine providence is the fact that he wishes to give us himself the reward that can't be bought, the reward that really, in all fairness, we have no capacity to earn for ourselves. The only thing we can do is choose for ourselves to use the grace God gave us so that we can experience and receive that divine providence. I think this is a tough one for most people because, I mean, in life, setting a broken bone hurts. And all of us being mostly broken upon our birth, his divine providence calls for our salvation. He wills the good of us because that is pure love. And for us to acknowledge divine providence, we also have to acknowledge the truth of God. It, all this kind of just builds layers upon itself and upon himself. So when we start looking for the prosperity gospel, you know, does God love us when we're poor? I think ultimately we'd have to say yes, right? Because if, if you're predisposed to the corruption of wealth, why would God give that to you? Why would he hand you a scorpion instead of the bread? You if know? he can love John the Baptist who's sitting out there in the middle of the desert, if he can love Anthony of the desert again, someone sitting in a desert again. He can love anybody. A lot of deserts. Well, yeah, the desert. We'll go with the prodigal son. He still loves the prodigal son when he comes back. Even when the prodigal son's away, the love is still there. The providence, again, it's that ability to come back and say, hey, I'll bring you in. And I don't care where you came from. And I don't care what things you did. As long as you come back to me with repentance, I will give you myself. That is really powerful thing for him to give. But in the end, it's completely devoid and separated from the earthly blessings and we need to, to remember that. It would, we would do well to remember that in everything we do. I think it's easier to treat people kindly, knowing that even those poor and wanting individuals that surround you very likely could have more grace than any of us. So I meet that person out there, and if they're experiencing God better than I am, they don't need money. They don't need a warm house. They don't need a family. They don't need good food. They, they don't need a great job. It doesn't matter. They could still have God's grace and still make it to heaven. And that's really what we need to focus on when we talk divine providence. 
Now, moving forward into question 20, what do we mean when we say that God is almighty? We're going back to his all-powerful nature, his all-knowing nature. Everything that's in him is perfection. He can do anything he wants. Now, before we go and <laughs> blow this out of proportion and say that he's going to, you know, hold a laser light show that goes all over the earth and, you know, try to show us how awesome he is, like we have all these pagan gods out there just showing how cool they are. God is almighty in line with his own virtues. God does not contradict his own virtues. So when we're talking about the fact that he's merciful, that he is just, that he is charitable, all of those things he has to honor and respect at all times because he committed himself to do so. He tells us that he's never going to tell us anything but the truth. And he says that in Titus. He also says it in the book of Numbers. He's only going to do things that fall in line with his will, which is perfect. He can't change it and make up down. He can't make good, evil, and vice versa. He can't make things that are contradictory and offensive to him less contradictory or less offensive to him. He is almighty enough to do all the things that are good perfectly in every way possible to ensure that he gives us that opportunity to overcome our own failures, to come and be repentant, to ask forgiveness for our sins, and ultimately receive the graces that allow us to overcome the fallen nature that we have kind of brought upon ourselves. That is what's almighty. His almightiness is in there saying, I can make everything perfect again. I can remove that sin. I can cleanse the earth. Amazingly almighty. And that's why when we say, for nothing shall be impossible with God, that's what we're talking about. Again, it's in the heavenly and eternal sense, not in that temporal sense. Yeah, I think uh, the whole idea of Almighty, right, and his divine providence. If God wants what's best for me and he can do anything, then why don't I have a car? It's the the parent-the-child thing, right? You don't want to spoil your child. You are trying to make them grow and nurture their well-being, their spiritual well-being, not just their physical well-being. So that's something that we have an issue with sometimes accepting the idea that if God's almighty and I've said my prayers and I've done this, then why is this bad thing happening? We don't know, but uh, it's for your benefit. That, that's a tough one because sometimes there's the, the factor I think a lot of people leave out is the, the direct intervention of your fellow human beings against the will of God. And God has permissive will as well as an active will. And I think we're not making those distinctions yet in this lesson, but I think the human mind, especially those that suffer, which we all do to some extent on some level with something. It, it's it's hard not to look at it like a parent-child relationship. Like, why me? What was me? You know, why would God do this to me? God does none of that because he is all good. He is all loving. He's all truth. So it's, it's you got to be careful not to assign blame to God. Also, wow. I would say, too, the idea of, I've heard, I've heard quite a few people say this, whether they're Protestant or otherwise, God can do whatever he wants. I, who am I to say God can't do this, that, and the other? God is, in his one of his perfections, is all just. So you will get your just rewards. And that leads us into that next question here, 21, is that we're going to ask then, as we're looking at God's perfections and his power, is God all wise, all holy, all merciful, and all just? And the answer here from the Catechism, and we know in terms of the Scripture and everything that he's done, yes, he is all wise, all holy, all merciful, and all just. But that means he can't be devoid of any of them ever. So he is not going to practice mercy devoid of justice. He will not go and sit there and say that bad things are good. He will not allow offenses against his church or against his people to stand without some level of justice being wrought. He can't be holy and be unmerciful or unjust. Therefore, whenever pain befalls one person, whoever that may be, 
we have to remember that that is completely in line with his mercy and completely in line with his justice and completely in line with how holy he is. We can't sit there and blame God for pain. That would be like Jesus blaming God for the cross. That doesn't make any sense. He took the cross on because we are to blame for our own problems. And he said, if you walk away from me, I can't defend you anymore because you said you didn't want it. I'm not going to help you and make your life easier or give you eternal glory with me if you will not actually do as I commanded. This is a total parent move, but eventually you come across a kid. If, if, you, if you have kids long enough, you meet another kid. That just is a real snot. Like you can just see that the parents don't put the time into them. You could see they get away with everything. And there's no justice in the house. There's no contrition from that child for breaking the rules, being disobedient for, for whatever the household is. He's not is. sad about it. And he's definitely, definitely not sad about it. And you just want to backhand this kid and teach him a lesson, right? But how much malice is really underneath there in the parent's heart that doesn't love their child enough to correct them and set them on a good path in life. And that's why we can't we can't look at God as a new God. He's not the the God of all mercy now with no justice because that's the Old Testament God and he's completely cool with all these modern, you know, I won't say modern sins, but the ones that we're really kind of accepting right now. And uh, you know, he's being lenient, he's being merciful and patient with us. But his mercy is completely contingent upon how much contrition we have and how truly sorry we are. And, we, and then the means we we must amend our lives or where the justice comes. You know, daddy takes his belt off and he's going to teach us a lesson. And it's not a it's not something most people are comfortable with because they're going to have to confront their own natures and what their proclivities are and how they spend a lot of their free time. But it's uh, it's something that we're separating. We're, we're dividing God up into like a cafeteria style understanding of theology nobody likes being corrected certainly but i think this whole idea of all merciful and all just is a very good distinction for us as catholics because muslims the way they behave they have all the justice and no mercy and the way many protestants behave is all the mercy with zero justice complete imbalance Yes. Which is the counter to the virtue of temperance, which we're going to get to also in one of the future lessons. Uh, Before we go on, though, I want to say, uh, you know, when we're talking about our own behaviors, meaning that the good in which we behave, I should say, warrants mercy or the badness to which we behave warrants justice. You can see why people of previous generations who are very attuned to that, that understanding in their faith would say that a natural disaster was God's wrath. It's very, very common now to laugh at that, like looking back like, oh, those idiots, those morons. That was just, of course, it was just a landslide. Even though you look at someplace like Pompeii and all of the sin and all of the evil there, and you're like, oh, no way, it was wiped off the face of the map. Or you look at Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple and the wrath that befalls Jerusalem because it leaves God. Because Judaism ultimately is apostasy, where they reject the divinity of Christ, where they reject one, if not two, of the three persons in God. Of course, they're going to ultimately pay for that. And in the end, if we're looking at justice and its its requirement, and in the end, he he literally told us as well and shows us with Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet, don't don't mess with this. We're done. How many times did Rome get sacked too? Well, and, and again, you have Nineveh. You have Nineveh actually on the cusp of it, and only in penance can you actually see any means of getting away uh, from the the punishment, not justice. Justice means in the end we're going to feel something. It's just a matter of whether I choose to feel it and I place myself under the yoke or whether God has to force it on me because I'm resistant. 
Indeed, Lepanto, think of Vienna, think of Tours, all these times where strong Catholic men stood up and were rewarded for their faith and for their virtuous stance. Now, continuing on here in Lesson 2, moving on to next questions here. This is another difficult one where it's going to take some time, and again, trying to uh, um, avoid going down the rabbit holes here because, again, it's very easy to get stuck in heresy, but we're going to go and ask the question, can we know by our natural reason that there is a God? And I would say, as St. Thomas rationalizes out, yes, by natural reason, we can tell that there is a God and there are things in us that we feel. There are things in us, whether it be morality and the things we try to hide when we know they're wrong. There are truths that we see, like two plus two is always going to be four, and X is always not equal to not X. These are absolute truths where we can see something that's uniformly absolute, regardless of where you came from, regardless of what language you speak, regardless of how old you are, regardless of what era you live in. These are truths that transcend time and space. God is there, um, but it's really hard for a lot of people living in their own, with their own desires placed above God's for them to understand this truth. Yeah, it's definitely, it's certainly hard. Um, I think, it, again, it goes back to that balance. Um, when you're looking at logically and when you're talking about that gut feeling, that just basic feeling that you have that something's not right, that, that spidey sense that we have. But it's a combination of the two. It's not just your emotions of, oh, I'm, I'm riding the spiritual high, God, here's God, you know, I'm dejected, oh, there is no God. It's also not cold rationalism either. Cold rationalism uh, will also lead you to prideful endeavors that we've seen in Throughout the, throughout the ages, whether it's the Enlightenment or, or the secular terrible thing that was Nazi Germany or Soviet Union. So it is a, it is a balance there. But I, I do think that you can rationalize out that, man, there must be a God. I just never struggled with, uh, with the existence of God. But I guess I always I fell back on the, uh, as we were talking about during our, our Paul's break, mm-hmm. it was the, uh, you see the order of creation, you see the order of existence, you see from the cosmos and the orbits of a solar system and a galaxy down to creation itself, a rock, a tree, you know, progressively through animals that they get smarter, the apex of which we say is man, at least from a worldly standpoint. But, you know, if you ever get by yourself and look up at night, you have to contemplate the infinite eventually. And that leads the next logical jump is what is the, the true apex of it all? And it can't be at creation. It has to be something bigger, something eternal. That's kind of how I make the, the rational leap to God. And I think too here, the complexity also in that creation is what starts to get a lot of people who are otherwise very confident that they knew that there was no God. And obviously it was just a, uh, you know, random thing that happened here or there that ultimately lightning strikes some mud. And next thing you know, there's all these creatures and whatever. The only thing that starts to go and break that is when they look at how complex it is and realize the extreme, extreme improbability of the complexity of all these different systems that are all coexisting and are all codependent upon one another, almost as if this entire design of this natural hierarchy, the animal kingdom, the dependence on the earth, the placement with the sun, the way the stars move, the way the weather goes, all this stuff. Well, the thing is, is like order does not come from disorder. It's the other way around. You clean your room, and in a few days or a week or something like that, it's going to start to look messy again. You see that everywhere, right? Like, you you have a field, and very soon it'll start to overgrow with weeds, branches will fall, whatever it is. Order tends to disorder. And I think that's even like a 
a law of physics actually uh wasn't much well much of a scholarly type but uh yeah, you don't get order from chaos exactly you don't get order from chaos but what does make sense right what does make sense is i see a child that little snot that we were talking about earlier misbehaving and i don't want him to do that around my children or, or wherever he's at in church or in the supermarket and how do i bring order to that chaos i tell that child to stop right i essentially to use a, a turn of phrase that's very popular these days with secularists, uh, speak truth to power. And where's the very first time we see that? In Genesis, let there be light. God brings chaos and potential into order. We'll make sure in the description section to include a handful of the proofs that we're aware of that are out there so that you guys can all go out there and look at the uh, natural reasoning for God because uh, none of us are actually uh, either physicists or you know philosophical experts. We're just sitting here giving it to you like we see it, um, but uh, you guys can judge for yourselves. Moving on, this builds in that same vein. Can we know God by any other way than our natural reason? And what we know in the church, the way we have been given all of the information to us from thousands of years of history to this point, is that the truths can be found in sacred scripture and in tradition, which God has revealed to us, and ultimately the magisterial truths that are promulgated by the church. And so this is where we can see that in Scripture, we're told actually in 1 Timothy 3.15, that truth actually exists within the church. We're seeing, they explain a bunch of things that otherwise the rest of the world is not able to figure out on its own. Uh, we know that the wisdom of God is also out there as well, actually contained there. And if we actually are tuning into those things, we will see a lot of the facets of God's character, of God's existence, his being, the results of his creation, the impacts. In the end, if, if you actually accept everything that he's shown us, the beauty is indescribable. So after going through the material we've covered this lesson, we're going to hold the rest of it till next week, and we will see you back, same time, same channel. And before we go, I want to remind everybody, uh, please subscribe on the YouTube channel. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever your preference may be, and we'll keep you up to speed on the newest lessons. Thanks for listening. So as always, St. Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us.